Noam Chomsky has been called many things, the most important intellectual alive, America's leading dissenter, and a few other things not suitable for polite company. Scholars around the world know him for his revolutionary work on the structure of language, studies he has pursued at MIT since 1955. But he's most controversial as a freelance critic of politics and power. Honest dissidence is what he calls it, the blunt scrutiny of national power, arbitrary government, and injustice. In dozens of books and hundreds of articles over the past quarter century, he has criticized the superpowers, from U.S. involvement in Southeast Asia and Central America to Soviet involvement in Afghanistan and Czechoslovakia. Twenty years ago, he was an early volunteer in the protest against the war in Vietnam. We met in Boston to talk about dissent and democracy then and now. You said recently that this country is more dissident now than you ever remember it, more so than even during the Vietnam War. When I read that, I, my mind went back immediately to that period, to the protests in the streets, the mass demonstrations, the riots on college campuses and in, in the ghettos. That dissidence it was powerful and uh, emotional and unprecedented. And you say we're a more dissident nation now? The dissidence now is much wider and more deeply rooted, and it's found in sectors of the population that uh, were excluded from the, uh, the dissident movements of the 1960s. I think to, to compare the present situation with the late 60s is a little misleading because of the scale of what, of, of what is being protested. Uh, the movements of the 60s became, uh, uh, well, part of the, the, the peace movement at least, the anti-war movement, became uh, a significant movement at a time when we had hundreds of thousands of troops uh, attacking South Vietnam and expanding the war to all of Indochina. Major war with hundreds of thousands of people slaughtered and uh, just one of the major wars of the century, in fact. Until that time, the peace movement was very limited. Uh, as late as mid-1966, here in Boston, which is a pretty liberal city, uh, we had a hard time having public meetings because they would be broken up, often broken up by students. Uh, uh, and it, in fact, it wasn't really until late 1966, early 1967, and remember at that time we had, what was it, about 400,000 troops fighting in Vietnam that you got a large-scale protest movement going. Now, compare the 80s. Uh, when Ronald Reagan came into office, uh, one of the first things he did was lay the basis for his advisors, one of the first things they did was to lay the basis for uh, direct military intervention in Central America. Uh, the uh, white paper of February 1981 was a clear uh, 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 effort to test the waters to see if you could get the population to support direct dispatch of troops to uh, El Salvador and probable military intervention in Nicaragua. Well, the reaction, uh, now that, that's kind of comparable to, we might, that's roughly comparable to the situation that, say, John F. Kennedy faced in 1961 or even to the late 50s. Now, at that time, intervention could take place without any protest. But as soon as the Reagan people made the, just the beginnings of an indication that there might be direct military intervention, there was substantial protest, spontaneous protests from all over the country, uh, horde of, you know, there were, there were demonstrations, there were, uh, uh, the church was protesting, there were letters to Congress. In fact, the protest was sufficient so that they backed off. The and they tried, the administration backed off because they were afraid that it was going to harm the programs that they were really interested in. They, they went underground with it. And the uh, Reagan administration was literally driven underground by a dissident population. Uh, the scale of clandestine activities, in fact, is a pretty good measure of domestic dissidence. 
After all, clandestine activities are secret from no one except the domestic population. Are you talking only about dissidents towards Central American policies? Do you no, see... it's much broader. Uh, for example, on, it's a striking fact that on almost every major issue, the population has been quite strongly opposed to the policies of the Reagan administration. This has been true from the beginning. If you take a look at the polls, uh, the poll results have been quite consistent about this. In fact, apart from uh, a brief period in the very first part of the first year of the administration when there was support for a military buildup, briefly, apart from that, the population has been basically tending towards classical New Deal positions. It favors public spending over uh, social spending over military spending. Uh, the population has been in favor of uh, increased taxes if they are used for uh, uh, improving the environment or education or social welfare and so on. Uh, if, if you look at the questions on the polls which ask, would you spend such and such an amount of money for new weapons or for, say, medical insurance, the answers have all have consistently been uh, uh, in favor of social spending against military spending. The population has been quite strongly opposed to the direct interventionism. In fact, the only exceptions to this are the sort of one-day quick victories. Grenada. Grenada. Defeat Grenada. Libya. Yeah, I mean, things like that, of course, everybody rallies around the flag. But anything that has extended, even to a limited extent beyond that, has has in fact uh, had public opposition. Now, it's not organized public opposition. You are saying that the, a, a, a negative poll on an issue constitutes dissidence? No, it only constitutes dissidence if it becomes articulated. Articulated. Yeah, and uh, on many issues it doesn't become articulated. On Central American policy, it did in fact become articulated, and that's what drove the government underground. Even as we talk, uh, however, 55% of the people in the latest Gallup poll express approval of, of, of President Reagan as he is preparing to leave office. Yeah. So that you have what you, you just have said, polls showing opposition to his policies, right. while he himself remains unusually popular in the public standing. Uh, I think there's something much more striking than the polls, and that is uh, the events of the 1980s. Uh, in the 1980s, it's, I think it's a very dramatic fact that in the 1980s, the government was driven underground. It was forced to undertake large-scale clandestine activities uh, because of its domestic enemy, because the domestic population would not tolerate those activities. In fact, the Reagan administration is very in interesting in this respect. It's the first administration to have created anything like the State Department Office of Public Diplomacy. I mean, there were elements of that before, but here oh, we had a... I have to tell you, the Kennedy administration, the Johnson administration, extent. the Nixon administration, all engaged well, in domestic sure. propaganda. And so did the Woodrow domestic. Wilson. It's the Creole Commission. That's that, where it yeah. began, really, yeah. in but, the modern you know, but world. These, but, but there's a substantial increase in scale. I mean, in the Reagan administration, you really had a massive enterprise uh, to control the public mind. Uh, in fact, when this was exposed during the uh, Iran-Contra hearings, partially exposed, uh, one high administration official des described it as the most successful operation they carried out. He said it's the kind of operation that you carry out in enemy territory. And that expresses the attitude toward the population completely. The population is the enemy, and you've got to control enemy territory, and the way you do it is by very uh, uh, extensive uh, public diplomacy, meaning propaganda. Sure, it's always been there, 
But the yeah, Lyndon but Johnson the considered you subversive. Uh, people like you subversive. That's right. Richard but Nixon. But uh, there's a qualitative. The change. enemy were right. the people in the streets, the demonstrators. Right. But the point is, there's a qualitative change in the resources that have been devoted, and the intelligence that has been devoted, and the resources drawn upon to ensure that the that enemy territory is controlled. Now, why go into the? Why, why do that? It's because the enemy is much more dangerous. The See, when the enemy's quiet, the, po the, the protesters, the dissenters. Yeah. When the enemy's quiet, you don't have, like, for example, when, when John F. Kennedy sent the American Air Force to start bombing South Vietnam in 1962, as he did, he didn't have to keep it secret. It was on the front page of the New York Times. Nobody cared. Uh, when Johnson uh, sent uh, 20,000 Marines to the Dominican Republic, in fact, to prevent a democratic revival there, uh, it was, there was a little bit of protest, but it basically wasn't secret. When Johnson sent hundreds of thousands of troops to invade South Vietnam, it wasn't secret. Uh, when we subverted the only free election in Laos in 1959, it wasn't secret. Nobody ever cared about these things. The population was really marginalized. Uh, that changed. It changed as a result of the popular movements of the 60s, which had a dramatic effect on the country, and I think a lasting effect. You keep coming back, though, to, to the opposition to the Central American policies, and I have to keep coming back asking, what's the evidence of other dissidents? In the early 60s, there was nothing like an environmental movement. There was nothing like a feminist movement. Uh, the, there was an anti-nuclear movement, but it was a few people sitting in a room somewhere. Uh, it, it's, now, it's, it's now a movement so vast that it, in fact, got something like 75% support for a nuclear freeze. Couldn't do anything with that support, but that's because, it, again, because the organizational structure was lacking. But all of these developments uh, are, are extremely significant. I mean, take, say, the churches. Uh, in, the, in the 1960s, the, church, the churches, by and large, were either supportive of government military intervention or else quiescent. Now it's very different. Oh, now no, they're right no, no, not all. William Sloan Coffin, the, the civil rights movement was... Co-conspirator of mine, we were on. But but but, but, but the, the civil rights movement, movement was was driven by by churchmen yes, and yes, churchwomen. But, but the civil rights movement was different. Okay. And, and Martin Luther right. King was himself a yeah. Baptist minister. Absolutely, and in fact, it was a tremendously important movement, and it was a popular movement, which for the first time, after close to two hundred years, uh, at least technically enfranchised uh, a significant segment of the population. Now that was a movement which did, in fact, have wide-scale support, even business support, for that matter. But it w it's, uh, the thrust of the civil right rights movement was not directed against the interests of centralized power in the United right. States. And that's crucial. Uh, the, the protest against the war, or the environmental movement, uh, or even the feminist movement in other respects, is directed against power. And those are the kinds that didn't exist then. They've developed in the six. I mean, they existed to an extent. You're saying there's more yeah. democracy today. Well, there's on the one hand a lot more popular uh, expression of democracy. On the other hand, it's less and less part of the official of the actual institutions of the system. It's outside. If all this ferment is going on, if there is more dissidence now than you can remember, why do you go on to write that the people feel isolated? Because I think much of the general population recognizes that the organized institutions do not reflect their concerns and interests and needs. They do not feel that they participate meaningfully in the political system. They do not feel that the media are telling them the truth or even reflect their concerns. Uh, they go outside of the organized institutions to act. And so on the one hand, you have a lot of 
popular ferment, a lot of dissidents, sometimes very effective. Uh, on the other hand, you have remoteness of the general public from the functioning institutions. We see more and more of our elected leaders and know less and less of what they're doing. Yeah. Fact, this yeah, medium does that. Very striking. In fact, the, the presidential elections have been almost removed from the point where the public even takes them seriously as involving a matter of choice. Uh, take congressional elections. Congress, especially the House, is more responsive to public opinion than higher levels. But even here, the, uh, the, the rate of uh, 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 electoral victory by incumbents has, become, has been going up. 90, very, high 90s. Yeah, high 90s. Well, that virtually is a way of saying that there aren't any elections. You know, it means that other systems you get like those economists so in yeah. a totality. I mean, it, it means that something else is happening, not choice. You know, it means that options are not being presented. Uh, and uh, uh, so, on the one hand, so I think you do have a kind of a complex situation in the United States. There's a break taking place, a cleavage taking place between a rather substantial part of the population and elite elements. Well, uh, that, that includes elite intellectuals, incidentally. But that elite element is supported by a substantial part of the population. Yeah. I mean, there are people who take seriously the debates, who go out and oh. vote, who think that they're participating and believe they're participating sure. in, a, in a legitimate yeah, exercise right. of democracy. Yeah. It's not a cleavage at, of the point of revolution. It's not that you have a narrow, it's not as if you had an aristocracy facing a mass population. It's not. Iran in 1979, oh, no. nothing like that. A lot of people are happy. Sure, it's, it's split and complex and fluid and so on, but I think you can see tendencies. You can see tendencies towards popular marginalization from functioning institutions and, uh, uh, and abstraction of those institutions from reflection of the pop, of, from public participation or even reflection now of the public that will. Vernacular. That means what? Well, it means that the political system increasingly increasingly functions without public input. Uh, it means to an increasing extent, not only do people not ratify decisions presented to them, but they don't even participate, but they don't even take the trouble of ratifying them. They assume that the decisions are going on independently of what they may do in the polling booth. And they feel Notice that even ratification of, of decisions made elsewhere is a very weak form of democracy. Ratification would, have, would be what? Well, ratification would mean a system in which there are two positions presented to me, the voter. I go into the polling booth and I push one or another button depending on which of those positions I want. That's a very limited form of democracy. Uh, a real, really meaningful democracy would mean that I play a role in forming those decisions and in creating those positions, that those positions reflect my active creative participation at it, uh, not just me, but of course everyone. That would be real democracy. That's not we're very far from that. Yeah. But we're even departing from the point where there is ratification. When you have stage-managed elections uh, with the public relations industry determining what words come out of people's mouth, you in fact are going beyond the, to the point where we are even the, even the element of ratification is disappearing because you don't expect the candidates to stand for anything. Uh, candidates decide what to say on the basis of tests that determine what the effect will be across the population. Somehow people don't see how profoundly contemptuous that is of democracy. Contemptuous? Yeah. Suppose I'm, I'm running for office and I don't tell people what I think or what I'm going to do. I tell them what the pollsters have told, told me is going to get me elected. That's expressing utter contempt for the electorate. That's saying, okay, you people are going to have the chance to push your buttons. But once you're done, I'll do exactly what I intend, which is not what I'm telling you. See, if you, if, you, if, you, if you express what you believe, you don't have to ask what the polls tell you. 
and then you express, you, you don't believe what the polls tell you, that's what you say. Uh, and in fact, the whole construction of our political system is increasingly moving towards a real articulated expression of contempt for the general population. And you, I think people understand it. If you conduct polls to tell you what people want and they tell you, are you not listening to the voice of the people? Only if that changes your mind. But of course, the whole structure of the system is, the system is based on the assumption that that doesn't change your mind, it changes what you say. So you uh, in other words, a, a, a political figure is not testing the waters and saying, okay, that's what I believe. Uh, if we had that kind of a political figure, we wouldn't bother voting for him. He's not a barometer. Uh, the, the political figure represents something, is supported by certain interests, has certain commitments, and so on. And the political figure then comes before us and produces things which the pollsters uh, tell him or his advisors on the average will increase his chances of gaining office, after which he will follow his commitments, uh, his interests, uh, what is demanded of him by those who supported him, uh, by those who provide him with resources, and so on. Well, this has always, of course, been true, but what is interesting now is the extent to which it is recognized to be the democratic system. It is recognized uh, that we don't care what we say. We don't express interest. What we do is reflect power. See, I think, I think Reagan's a very interesting political figure, uh, and I think in a, in a way he may represent the future of where capitalist democracy is tending. He's a very natural kind of phenomenon in a capitalist democracy. In a capitalist democracy, you have the problem, and it is always perceived as a problem, that the popular general population has a method of participating in decision-making. They can participate in politics. The state is not capable of stopping them. You can't shut them up. You can't put them in jail. You can't keep them away from the polls and so on. And it's striking that that has always been perceived as a problem to be overcome. It's what's called the crisis of democracy. Too many people organizing themselves to become... To, part to, to enter the public arena. That's a crisis we have to overcome. According it. to yeah. a certain view. It has always been understood by, uh, um, I would say, even the mainstream of democratic theorists that when the voice of the people is heard, you're in trouble uh, because they're always going to make the wrong decisions. The stupid and ignorant masses, as they're called, are going to make the wrong decisions. So therefore, we have to have what Walter Lippmann, well, back in 1920 or so, called manufacture of consent. We have to ensure that actual decision-making, actual power is in the hands of what he called a specialized class, uh, us smart guys, you know, who are going to make the right decisions. Um, and we've got to keep the general population marginalized because they're always going to make mistakes. Marginalizing meaning? Reduce them to apathy and obedience. Allow them to participate in the political system, but as consumers, not as true participants. That is, allow them a method for ratifying decisions that are made by others, but eliminate the methods by which they might first inform themselves, second, organize, and third, act in such a way as to really control uh, decision-making. That is, the idea is our leaders control us, not we control them. Now, that is a very widespread view from liberals to conservatives. And how do you achieve this? Well, there are a lot of ways of achieving it, but one of the ways of achieving it is by... Uh, uh, creating a, uh, turning the elected offices into ceremonial positions. If you could get to the point where people would essentially vote for the Queen of England uh, then you, and, and take it seriously, then you would have gone a long way towards marginalizing the public. And I think we've made a big step in that direction. The presidency as ceremonial leader. As and see, that's why Reagan's so interesting, because, you know, although a lot of intellectuals try to put a 
the best face they can on it. The fact of the matter is, and most of the population knows, that Ronald Reagan had only the foggiest ideas of what the policies of his administration were. And in fact, nobody much cared. Uh, the Democrats were always surprised that he could get away with these incredible bloopers and crazy statements and so on. The detachment of yeah, the decision. And, and I think the reason is that much of the population understood very well that they were supporting someone like the Queen of England or the flag. The Queen of England opens Parliament by reading uh, a political program, but nobody asks whether she understands it or does she believe it or anything like Every that. Every book from within the Reagan administration, from the Stockman book to the Reagan book to the new book that's now on the, on, on the newsstands, uh, says that, says that the president was detached from well, the decision. Well, more than detached. I think he doesn't know what it is. And I, think he, and I think much of the population understood it. Now, I think that explains the combination of moderate, not an enormous, but moderate popularity with opposition to the programs. What do we do about it? I mean, I don't want to leave people in a wholly uh, negative analysis, although I believe in facing reality. For ordinary people, it's extremely hard. And that's why you need organization. Uh, what is, if a real democracy is going to thrive, if the real values that are deeply embedded in human nature are going to be able to flourish, and I think that's necessary to save us, if nothing else, it will be, it's an absolute necessity that, that groups form in which people can join together, can share their concerns, can articulate their ideas, can uh, gain a response, can discover what they think, can discover what they believe, what their values are. This can't be imposed on you from above. You have to discover it by experiment, by, uh, by, by effort, by trial, by application, and so on. And this has to be done with others. Furthermore, uh, surely central to human nature is a need to be engaged with others in cooperative efforts of solidarity and concern. That can only happen, almost by definition, through group structures. And unless such Political things, organization. Political and other. Civic organizations. All sorts. Asso trade associations. Yeah, I mean, all, there are all kinds of ways in which people can associate with one another. And uh, I think what I would like to see is uh, a move towards a society which is really based on, proli on proliferating voluntary organization with eliminating as much as possible structures of hierarchy and domination and the basis for them in ownership and control, uh, and uh, uh, becoming the means by which we uh, govern ourselves, by which we control our lives does at a, every level. Does a citizen have to have far-reaching, specialized knowledge to understand the realities of power, to understand what's really going on? Well, you know, I, I, it's not absolutely trivial, but I mean, as compared with intellectually complex tasks, it's pretty slight. It's not like the sciences. I mean, I, I think there's big effort made to make everything seem mysterious, but uh, you know, there are things that you have to study and know something about. But by and large, which ha what happens in social politi and political life is relatively accessible. It does not take uh, special training. It doesn't take uh, you know, any unusual intelligence. What it really takes is honesty. honesty. If, you, if you're honest, you can see it. Do you believe in common sense? I mean, you're oh, absolutely. A, you I do believe in, in Cartesian common sense. I think people have the capacities to uh, see through the deceit in which they're ensnared, but they've got to make the effort. Seems a little incongruous to hear a man from the ivory tower of Massachusetts Institute of Technology, a scholar, a distinguished 
linguistics uh, scholar talk about common people with such appreciation and common sense. Yeah, I think that scholarship, at least the field that I work in, uh, has the opposite consequences. By my own studies in language and human cognition uh, demonstrate, to me at least, what remarkable creativity ordinary people have. The very fact that people talk to one another is a reflection, and just in a normal way, I don't mean anything particularly fancy, uh, reflects deep-seated features of human creativity, which in fact separate human beings from any other biological system we know. Uh, you get tremendous respect for human beings when you begin to study their normal capacities. You have said that we live entangled in webs of endless deceit, that we live in a highly indoctrinated society where elementary truths are easily buried. The elementary truths such as? Such as the fact that we invaded South Vietnam, or the fact that we're standing in the way of significant, and have for years, of significant moves towards uh, arms negotiation, or the, the fact that the military system is to an, a substantial extent, not totally, but to a substantial extent, a mechanism by which the general population is compelled to provide a subsidy to high technology industry. Since they're not going to do it if you ask them to, you have to deceive them into doing it. I think there are many truths like that, and I don't think we don't, we don't face them. We have, an, we have an interesting political system in the United States. It's different from those of the other industrial democracies. This is a very free country. I mean, the uh, individuals are, by comparative standards, the state is very restricted in its capacity to coerce and control us. There's very little they can do. Police can't come in and stop us from talking or anything remotely like that. Uh, in fact, even as compared with other industrial democracies, we're very free in this respect. On the other hand, the pr practical limits on those freedoms are unusually high. Uh, this is the practical limit. Well, there are sophisticated mechanisms that have been devised to prevent us from making use of those freedoms. And furthermore, it has been understood for a long period that in a society that's free, in a society where the state does not have the right, the power to coerce, other mechanisms must be found to ensure that the, pub, the population doesn't get in the way. Other mechanisms being? Indoctrination, uh, elimination of secondary organizations, um, say unions, you know, other political clubs, ways in which people, if, for, 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 a, for a single isolated individual to participate in a meaningful way in the political system is almost impossible. I mean, you have to have, you don't, you have to have means to inform yourself, to have ideas, to interchange those ideas with others, to, cr to turn them into possible programs, to press for those programs. Now that takes access to information, it takes independent media, it requires what sociologists call secondary organizations, means by which isolated people political can group parties, together. Yeah. Political, polit active political yeah. parties, political clubs, Unions have often played this role in many countries. The United States is unusual in the, uh, in the extent to which all of these structures are weak. So we're very, the, the level of unionization is extremely low and under the Reagan period has declined even further. Furthermore, the American unions have always been basically apolitical, or largely so. Uh, the uh, political system is also unusual. We're the only major industrial democracy that doesn't have a political party which is basically labor-based. We only have one political party with two factions. It's the business party. Uh, we have two factions of the business party called the Democrats and the Republicans, and that's unusual. Uh, in fact, these, these 
this perception is uh, transmuted in an odd way into political terminology. So, for example, in the 1980s, uh, each election in the 1980s, uh, uh, the Democrats have been accused of being the party of the special interests. And then they hotly deny it, and they say, no, they're not the party of the special interests. But who are the special interests? Well, take a look behind the rhetoric, and you find that the special interests are women, labor, youth, the elderly, uh, ethnic minorities, uh, the poor, farmers. In fact, it's the entire population. The point being. The entire population are the special interests. Now, if you look closely, there's one group that's never identified as being among the special interests. That's corporations. And that's correct. They're the national interest. Uh, and both parties are basically beholden to them. Uh, just uh, uh, whereas the special interests have to be marginalized, the population. So everyone denies that they represent the special interest, that is, the people. Uh, and uh, they don't say who they do represent, but there is somebody, a group notably lacking in this list of special interests. And in fact, it's the group with anyone with his head screwed on knows has inordinate power uh, in controlling economic decisions and setting the parameters for political life and controlling the ideological system and so on. They are not among the special interests. Do you think it is corporations or it, is, it, is it the the capitalist business system whose first priority is the well-being of profit-making for the general welfare, as it is said. Well, of course, everyone, you know, you ask the chairman of the board, and he'll always tell you that he spends his every waking hour laboring so that uh, people will get the best possible products at the cheapest possible price and work in the best possible conditions and so on and so forth. Now, there's an, it's an institutional fact, independently of who the chairman of the board is, that he'd better be trying to maximize profit and market share. And if he doesn't do that, he's not going to be chairman of the board anymore. If he were ever to succumb to the delusions that he expresses, he'd be out. Now, he can hold those delusions as long as he performs his institutional role. Uh, and the same is true across the board. So for example, you can be, uh, take, say, Walter Lippmann's specialized class, the experts. Uh, uh, some of them are candid enough to tell you the truth, like Henry Kissinger who defined an expert as a person who uh, is capable of articulating the consensus of people with power. That's what made him an expert. That's true. If you want to be an expert, part of the specialized class, you have to be able to serve the interests of objective power. That's an institutional role that has to be played. And if you do that, you can be in it. If you want to be a journalist, let's say, uh, you have to accord to the needs of the institutions. And the institutions have very definite needs. I mean, the major media are They're all corporations. They're major corporations. They, like any other business, they have a product and an audience, a product and a, a market. Uh, the market is other businesses. They sell their product to advertisers. That's what keeps them going. And the product is audiences, and in fact, for the elite media, privileged audiences, because that improves advertising rates. So what the media are, fundamentally, from as far as institutions are concerned, they're major corporations selling relatively privileged audiences to other businesses. For, uh, it's not very surprising to discover that those are the interests they reflect. Uh, furthermore, if you take a look at the managing positions, the managerial positions, the cultural managers, more or less, editors and so on, they're, first of all, very privileged themselves. Uh, they share associations and concerns with other privileged people. There's a close interaction and, in fact, a flow of people even between corporate boardrooms and government decision-making centers and media and so on. And uh, 
uh, there are many other factors, in fact, which uh, yield the consequence that the independent media, without government coercion, there's also some of that, but even without government coercion, tend to accept and adopt as the framework for discussion the interests and concerns and the perspective of the privileged sectors of the society. That's true of the information system. It's true of the political system. Uh, the distribution of resources alone determines it. Uh, as other modes of, ex of organization and articulate expression and so on have declined, isolated individuals find themselves marginalized. I and they end up by voting for a ceremonial figure if they bother to vote at all. Are you suggesting that there are that there's a conspiracy, that there are people who gather and decide we're going to eliminate unions, we're going to, we're going to eliminate popular participation in political parties, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Is there a conspiracy? Well, my, my point is, in fact, exactly the opposite. I mean, I think, and stress again, that these are institutional facts. These are the ways the institution functions. Let's go back to the chairman of the board. There's no conspiracy in the board of managers to try to raise uh, profits and market share. In fact, if the board of managers didn't pursue that program, they wouldn't be in business any longer. Uh, it's, it's part of the structure of the social system and the way in which the institutions function within it that they are going to be trying to maximize profit, market share, decision-making capacity, and so on. Doing what comes naturally. It's not that it's, yeah, it's part, you, you might say it comes naturally because they would never have gotten to that point unless they'd internalized those values. But it's also constrained. If they stop doing it, their stock's going to decline and so on and so forth, and somebody else will you know, they'll be bought up and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, pretty much the same is true of these other institutions. Uh, if, the, uh, if, if some segment of the political system, suppose we had an authentic political party reflecting the needs of uh, the special interests, the population, uh, it would no longer be supported. It would be denounced by the information system. It would be condemned for being uh, anti-American or subversive and so on. Uh, it would not even have the minimal resources to keep functioning. And since we don't have a network of popular structures to sustain it, it would disappear. You've said that the primary function of the mass media is to mobilize public support for the special interests that dominate the government and the private sector. But that's not how the media see it. They claim, we claim, that our news judgments rest on unbiased, objective criteria. Yeah, that's sure how that. we see it. Yeah. But in fact, the chairman of the board also sees what he is doing as a service to humanity. You know, we but like the lobster in the trap. We can't see it close behind us. Well, the point is that no one would even make it to a high decision-making position in the media, whether as columnist or managing editor or whatever, unless they had already internalized the required values. Internalized. They believe them. There's a number of things you have to believe to make it to top managerial positions. You have to believe that the United States is unique in history in that uh, it acts from benevolent motives. Now, benevolent motives are not properties of states, whether it's the United States or any other one. They don't have, it's just an, it's meaningless to so talk you're about. you saying that the United but States can act for... I mean, it acts because of the interests of groups that have power within it, like any other society. But anyone who believes this truism is already excluded. You have to believe that whatever the United States does is defensive. If we bomb South Vietnam, we're defending South Vietnam. Uh, if the Russians invade Afghanistan, that's not defense. Now, of course, if you, I suppose if you go to the Politburo, they'll tell you they're defending Afghanistan. They're defending it against terrorists supported from the outside. And, of course, there's a, you know, we know that there's a, they'll, in fact, even tell you they were invited in. 
And there's a kind of an element of truth to all of that, but we naturally dismiss it as nonsense. On the other hand, when we create a government in South Vietnam to invite us in, uh, and we attack the population of South Vietnam, and we bomb people to drive them into concentration camps to separate them from the guerrillas who we concede they're supporting and so on, we're defending South Vietnam. And anyone who doesn't agree with this is not part of the system. You're equating the Soviet Union and the United States, no. and, and the Gene Kirkpatricks and others would say, of course, that's the fundamental fallacy of Dr. Chomsky's yeah. approach, is that he is saying there is a moral equivalency. I don't say anything of the kind. That's a, that's, that's an, the, these notions are, in fact, inventions of the Gene Kirkpatricks and other reactionary jingoists. Uh, the Soviet Union and the United States are at opposite poles among contemporary political systems. What I'm saying is that even though they are at opposite poles, in some respects, they behave alike. And that's, that's for deep-seated reasons that have to do with the exercise of power and institutions and so on. And you do that has admit, nothing to do with moral equivalence. You do admit that we, that we are a free society. That I know, we're I admit it. I insist upon it. I, I insist that you, we are a free society and that the Soviet Union is a dungeon. And therefore, we have completely different methods of population control, completely different methods. In fact, I've written a lot about this. There's no moral equivalence here. The totalitarian, I mean, there's no, you know, nothing, no state is truly totalitarian. But as we move toward the totalitarian end of the spectrum, uh, the technique of control is roughly that satirized by Orwell. You have a center of truth. You have a ministry of truth. It announces official truths. Uh, people can believe it or not. Nobody cares very much. It's sufficient that they obey. Totalitarian states can be more or less behavioristic. They don't really care what people think because they always have a club uh, at hand to beat them over the head if they do they the wrong thing. force people to do what they want so to do. As long as they, they can think what they like in private, but they better do what we tell them in public. That's, that's the model towards which totalitarian states tend. As a result, the propaganda may very well be not too effective. On the other hand, a democratic state can't use those mechanisms. Can't force anybody you to... You can't force people. Therefore, you have to control what they think. Since since power is still concentrated, but in different hands in our society, largely in private ownership, uh, and you can't control people by force, you'd better care what they think. So that's which why means you, you have to have other forms, and in fact, more sophisticated forms of indoctrination. I did an interview once with Edward Bernays, who yeah. was considered the pioneering right. figure in American business public relations, and he talked through there about the, the engineering of consent. Yeah, that's his phrase. Yeah. And he thought it's a wonderful thing. In fact, he described it as the essence of democracy. Yeah, he said if the consent of the government presupposes that efforts at persuasion, at trying to persuade people to see things your way. You notice I, the picture. The picture is certain people are in a position to persuade, and the essence of democracy is that they have the freedom to persuade. Now, who has the freedom to persuade? Well, who runs the public relations industry? It's not the special interests. They're the targets of the public relations industry. Public relations industry is a major industry, closely linked to other corporations. And those are the people who have the power to persuade. That's the essence of democracy. Yeah, and they must engineer the consent of others. There was a vice president of AT&T in 1909 who said that he, he thought the public mind was the chief danger to the to company. The exactly. The general public uh, might have funny ideas about corporate control. For example, you know, people who really believe in democracy, people who take 18th century values seriously, people who really might merit the term conservatives, that much abused term, are against concentration of power. Uh, they uh, remember that, the, after all, the, the, the doctrines of the Enlightenment held that individuals should be free from the coercion of concentrated power. 
Now, the kind of concentrated power that they were thinking about was the church and the state and the feudal system and so on. And they, you could sort of imagine a, collect, a population of relatively equal people, at least equal white male property owners, who would uh, be not controlled by those private powers. But in the subsequent period, a new form of power developed, namely corporations, uh, with highly concentrated power over decision-making in, in economic life. That is, they control over what's produced, what's distributed, what's invested, and so on and so forth, is very narrowly concentrated. So this is why the vice president of the Lawrence Corporation would say the public mind the is public the chief thing. The public mind might have funny ideas about democracy, which say that we should not be forced simply to rent ourselves to the people who own the country, rather, and own its institutions. Rather, we should play a role in determining what those institutions do. That's democracy. Uh, if, if, if we were to move towards democracy, and I think democracy even in the 18th century sense, uh, we would say that uh, there should be no maldistribution of power in determining what's produced, what's distributed, what's invested, and so on. Rather, that should be, uh, that's, a, that's a problem for the entire community. Uh, in fact, uh, there are, in my own personal view, unless we move in that direction, uh, human society probably isn't going to survive. Why? Well, uh, we now face the most awesome problems of human history, uh, problems such as the likelihood of nuclear conflict, either among the superpowers or through proliferation, uh, the destruction of a fragile environment, which finally we're beginning to recognize that was obvious decades ago that we're heading for disaster. Uh, other problems of this nature, they're, they're of a level of seriousness that they never were in the past. But why do you think more participation by a public by the public, more democracy is the answer. Because, well, more democracy is a value in itself. So because. quite apart, because democracy is a value. It doesn't have to be defended anywhere, and freedom has to be defended. That's just, it's, it's, it's part of, it's an essential feature of human nature that people should be free, they should be able to participate, they should be uncoerced, and so on. Right, so These are values line. in themselves. Right. Quite why do you think, if we go that route, because it was... I think that there's, that's the only hope that I can see that other values will come to the fore. I mean, if the society is based on control by private wealth, uh, it will reflect the values that it in fact does reflect, the value that the highest, the only real human property is the desire for, is greed and the desire to maximize personal gain at the expense of others. Now, any society, uh, maybe a small society based on that principle is ugly, but it can survive. A global society based on that principle is headed for massive destruction, and that's what we are. We have to have a mode of social organization that reflects other values that I think are inherent in human nature that people recognize. And that would be, I want to see exactly well, what you mean. I mean. What are human beings? I mean, in your family, for example, it's not the case that in the family every person tries to maximize personal gain at the expense of others, or if they do, it's kind of pathological. It's not the case that if... If you and I are, say, walking down the street and we see a, uh, a child uh, eating a piece of candy and we see that nobody's around we don't, and we happen to be hungry, we don't steal it. If we did that, it would be, it would be pathological. I mean, the idea of care for others and concern for other people's needs and uh, concern for a fragile environment that must sustain future generations, all of these things are part of human nature. These are elements of human nature that are suppressed in a social and cultural system which is designed to maximize personal gain. Where and I think we must 
try to overcome that suppression, and that's in fact what democracy could bring about. It could lead to the expression of other human needs and values which tend to be suppressed under the institutional structure of a system of private power and private profit. But do you believe that by nature human beings yearn for freedom, or have, do we settle in the interest of safety and security and conformity? Do we settle for order? These are really matters of faith rather than knowledge. On the one hand, you have the Grand Inquisitor who tells you that what people, what humans crave is submission, and therefore Christ is a criminal, and we have to vanquish freedom. That's one view. You have the other view of, say, Rousseau in some of his moments, that people are born to be free, and that their basic instinct is the desire to free themselves from coercion, authority, and oppression. It's, the answer to which you believe is more or less where you stake your hopes. I'd like to believe that people are born to be free, uh, but if you ask for a proof, I couldn't give it to you. You've dealt in such unpopular truths and have been such a lonely figure as a consequence of that. Do you ever regret either that you took the stands you took, writ have written the things you have written, or that they, we had listened to you earlier? Uh, I don't. I mean, there are particular things which I would do differently because you think about things, you do them differently. But in general, I would say I do not regret it. I mean, do you like being caused... controversial? No, so no, it's a nuisance. Because this mass medium pays little attention to the views of dissenters, not just Noam Chomsky, right. but, but, but most dissenters do not get much of a hearing in this medium. No, in fact, that's, again, completely understandable. They wouldn't be performing their societal function if they allowed favored truths to be challenged. Because after all, their role, their very institutional role, is to establish certain truths and beliefs, not to allow them to be challenged. Society does, in order to cohere, does need a consensus, does it not? I think it needs tentative assumptions, but we should remember what Justice Holmes said in one of his famous dissents, that uh, fighting faiths have uh, repeatedly been seen to be false. And we should recognize that. Yes, we need tentative assumptions in order to continue with our lives, but we also ought to be open to a, a healthy society would not only tolerate, but encourage uh, challenge. That's what happens in the sciences. In the sciences where the world is keeping you honest, and you can't be dishonest, fundamentally, uh, not only is challenge tolerated, but it's stimulated. If a student comes along with a new idea that threatens established beliefs, you don't kick them out of your office. You, you, you pay attention, you're struck. But in politics? Well, political life is preserving privilege and power, but that's not a value that should be protected. That's a property that should be overcome. I'm not suggesting, I'm not saying question everything always. That's hopeless. You know, like I walk out the door, I don't think the floor is going to collapse. Of course, you accept things. You have faith, you have beliefs, and so on, and you operate on the basis of them. But you should, if honest, recognize that they are subject to challenge, and that if the past is any guide, they're probably wrong, because beliefs have generally been wrong in the past. Uh, also, we just understand more. We understand more about ourselves as history continues. Uh, it's hard to look at the 20th century and be an optimist, but uh, still, there's some moral progress in history. I would take, say, slavery. It wasn't very long ago that slavery was considered moral, not just we want to do it. The slave owners didn't normally say, look, uh, nice for me, so I'll do it. They offered a moral basis for slavery. Nobody does that anymore. That's an improvement. Just in our own lifetimes, this has happened. I mean, take the issues raised by the, by the feminist movement. 
women do have well, equal no, rights. These were and things that many people simply did not see yeah. 30 years ago. Now, I, I, the problems are still there, at least we see them. That's, that's greater insight into our own nature. Uh, it's insight, it's discovery of forms of repression and authority that we know we do not accept as moral human beings and that we ought to try to overcome. And I think you can sense such progress. At the same time, you also have decline. I mean, Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia. Are, the genocide of this century, uh, you know, the Holocaust. All indescribable. Of yeah. So there's, that's why I say it's hard to look at the 20th century and say that you're an optimist. What but about the 21st century? Well, I don't think we're going to get far into the 21st century unless these problems are overcome. Uh, because the problems are no longer localized. I mean, Hitler's genocide was probably the worst moment in human history, but it was still, in a sense, localized. It was a huge massacre, but it was bounded. The problems we're now facing are not going to be bounded. Uh, a nuclear war, for example, if there's a superpower confrontation, or even a confrontation among lesser nuclear powers, that's not going to be bounded in any sense that wars were in the past. Or if we all unplug the environment. Or if we do not, if we, if we continue to act on the assumption that the only thing that basically matters is personal greed and personal gain, the commons will be destroyed. We didn't have to worry about that too much in the past. It was happening. But now it is clear that they're going to be destroyed. Other human values have to be expressed if we hope even to, if future generations are going to even be able to survive. From Boston, this has been a conversation with Noam Chomsky. I'm Bill Moore.